0: you would bring a full healing and full restoration to his back. And so, Father, I lift him up to you and just pray, Lord, that your presence would be a blessing in his life. And lastly, I thank you, Father, for our ministry at Mercy House. I I pray for those who served, those who prepared the food. I pray for those who shared your word. And just pray, Father, that you would multiply that ministry. And so, Father, I just lift it up to you. And as we have such a great opportunity, pray, Father, that we would be found faithful. But right now, God, as we open your word, we pray again that you would speak to us, you would minister to us, and I pray, Father, that you would continue to change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. As insignificant as it may seem, the titles are the inspired word of God. And in chapter 14, everybody turn off their phones. In chapter 14, the title is, To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. So we know that this was written by King David, and he goes on to say, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one." Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad." Now, when examining any section of Scripture, we must ask ourselves a few questions. First of all, what is God telling us here? What is God telling us in Psalm 14? What does He desire us to do? What is to be our response to what God tells us? And how does it apply to our lives? How does it integrate into our daily lives, into those we come in contact with? How can I display these things through my life? Now, we know concerning the Bible, this is God's word to mankind. We're told that specifically in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul tells us all Scripture That means the whole Bible is given by inspiration of God. That means it is breathed by the mouth of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's all that's necessary to live a life that is honorable before the Lord. There is privilege to those to whom it has been given and, and I'm connecting these two together, and those who follow it. Again, what Jesus said as he washed the apostles' feet, blessed are you if you do these things. So blessed we are. We have the privilege that we have the Word of God seated upon our laps, but blessed blessed we are as we do these things. At some point, there needs to be that outward expression of what God is doing inside of us through his Word. Because of this, any time we study a particular scripture, we need to ask, "What is God speaking to me?" What is God speaking to Calvary Chapel, Ontario? It's what I consider as I put a study together. What's the purpose that God has us in this section of Scripture? I really believe that God has led us to the Psalms on Thursday night. I don't know how long right now. We've gone verse by verse through the Psalms about. Well, close to 20 years ago, about 18 years ago. Um, We did Psalm 51, that great psalm of contrition, for three weeks. We finished that last week. And so I really believe that Psalm 14 has a message for us here today concerning our church, but also society. Now, no scripture is of less importance, but some are more important. And, And you can ask, how could one scripture be more important than any other scripture, especially if it's breathed from the mouth of God? Well, it's the one that applies to our life today or a society today that is of the utmost importance at this moment. And so we must consider these things as we are reading the Bible. For instance, if you read the one-year Bible, it's got a whole one-year plan that is available to you. Every single day, a few scriptures. But you have to look at it that those are God's scriptures for you that day. You have to open it with the mindset, what is the instruction that God has for me today? What does God want of me, and how does God want to work through me? Well, the verses that he gives you that day are verses that are to prepare you for what God has for you, or or again, through you. So all this being the case, we must first see the importance, biblically speaking, of Psalm 14. Turn just real quick to Psalm 53. It's gonna look really familiar. What is the importance on Psalm fourteen? Well, God thought it important enough to repeat himself. There's only two minor changes in two verses, but it says to the chief musicians, Set to Mahalath, a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt and have done abominable. Uh, iniquity, there is none who does good. I'm not going to read through the whole psalm again, but you get the picture that, well, God, for the purpose of getting our attention, he's repeated it. Well, Paul's picked up on this as well in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul has just finished, and we're going to look at this a little bit later on. So if you turn over to Romans, you may want to put your finger in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, he builds up to a crescendo, because he's looked at the pagan, he's looked at the self-righteous, he's looked at the Jew, he's looked at the person who tries to achieve salvation through their own works, and he says, well, that's possible if you're able to be as good as God all the time, but then what he does is he's gently laid man in his coffin, and it's here that he nails the the lid shut. So, all those who attempt to be right before God according to pagan means, which could even be according to your own intellect, according to man's ability, or according to religion, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, and is none who seeks or searches after God. They have all turned aside and have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And even the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes was influenced by this. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And so we're kind of getting the point here of the depravity of mankind. It's complete and it is thorough. If I'm sharing the gospel with somebody out on the street, I have to bring them to the point where they understand that they're a sinner. Because if they do not come to the place, they understand of their their sin, the existence of their sin within them, why would they need a Savior? Now, it's easy to bring somebody, to destroy somebody through argument or whatever, and that's not the purpose, although there needs to be a tearing down, but there's got to be the building up. So to convince somebody that he's a sinner and then walk away, you've done absolutely nothing for that person. But to convince is a sinner, but then say there's a Savior. There, there's one who loves you, and because you're a sinner, he died for your sins. It's to preach the gospel and to build that person up. But Psalm 14 is showing us the depravity, the total depravity of mankind. James Montgomery Boy said, Anything that God says once demands our attention. Anything that he says twice demands our most intent attention. And anything God says three times should be read, reread, marked, learned, and inwardly digested. Well, Psalm chapter 14 is one of those sections of Scripture. It is mentioned three other times in the Word of God. So God is making a point, God is tapping us in the chest by this concept. So again, verse 1 to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. A fool, a fool is someone who is senseless, somebody who lacks common sense, has nothing to do with mental capacity, There are smart fools, matter of fact, I think we elect a few of them to office every time we have an election, Uh, people that we look at that are very intelligent, but intelligent, well, even if you have intelligence, you can still act foolishly. The fool is someone who knows what the right way to go is, but ignores it and does the complete opposite. And we've seen these things throughout history, that smart people, good people, but acted foolishly and people paid the price. I like to study the Civil War, and I've seen many times as you're reading these stories of the Civil War, and you see these generals, and and, and you almost want to tell them if you could, don't do that. It's not going to turn out well. It's so obvious. Pearl Harbor, Japan. Japan was invading the Pacific for the most part, had yet to attack the United States of America, but it sure seemed imminent. And there's Pearl Harbor with its guard completely down. And get destroyed. That was just foolishness to not be prepared for such an attack. And so we must not be foolish, regardless of what our mental capacity is. There's certain realities, certain truths in the scriptures that we can't ignore. It's the fool who ignores the fact that he is the sinner. Now, we're told in John chapter 16, and y'all should know it by now because I mention it all the time, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so that's the Holy Spirit that convicts us that because of the Spirit of God, that he, he tells us something. Everybody is aware of this. And they understand that they're a sinner. Sin, righteousness, everybody is aware of the existence of God. They need Everybody will make a decision of that. Some people will be aware of the existence of God, but will foolishly choose to not believe. But nonetheless, everybody is aware of it. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Everybody understands and everybody knows that they're going to have to stand before a holy God and give an account for their sins. A fool? Well, the majority of times in the scriptures is somebody who chooses to deny God despite the overwhelming proof of God, or a person who knows that God exists, but chooses to ignore him anyway. And again, that's a good description of our culture today. And I really don't care what people say. If they don't, they say they don't believe in God. They just yell that. They act according to that because deep inside, that's a conflict that exists within their hearts. Because again, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the supernatural power of God that convicts them of those things. We've seen fools in the Bible, Pharaoh, remember Remember the frog issue in Exodus chapter 8? Finally, he sends for Moses. There's frogs all over the place. Have you ever stepped on a frog? I haven't either, but I can just imagine how disgusting it must be. You open your cupboard and there's frogs jumping out of your cupboard. You know, it just had to be horrible. And so finally, he's had enough. And all the people, I mean, frogs in your bed. And so he calls Moses to come. Moses comes and and Moses says, okay, so when do you want the frogs to go away? And he says, Tomorrow tomorrow? You, you, you want to live with the frogs one more night? How foolish is that? It, it makes absolutely no sense, but that's a cross-section of, uh, of how foolish society, a society, could be. The children of Israel in the wilderness, as they're on their way to the promised land, They've seen God move in just such a miraculous way and he's delivered his people from the most powerful nation in the world. And if that wasn't enough, right at the beginning, he parts that great sea, lets them through, brings it back upon the Egyptians. He's bringing water out of a rock. God's doing miraculous things and they're whining and complaining throughout their trip within the wilderness. They were unable to enter into the promised land because of a lack of faith. And you look at that and you think, how foolish was that? Don't laugh at them, though, because you might have been there doing the same thing. Anyone who has a hard heart against God, that person, that person is a fool. The person who understands that he's a sinner and does not admit it, that person is a fool. The person who closes his ear, his conscience to the Holy Spirit, that person is foolish. Jeremiah chapter five verses one through four it says run to and fro through the streets of jerusalem and see now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man if there is any one who executes judgment who seeks the truth and i will pardon her though they say as the lord lives surely they swear falsely O oh Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. A member of our church sent me something because I used to live in Bray. I went to high school When I lived in Brea, I went to Brea High School and whatnot, and there was a, uh, I guess it was a board meeting of the school district of those who planned the curriculum and all. Part of the curriculum in the Brea School District next year is going to include pedophilia. I don't, I don't know to what degree and how they're going to present it and whatever, but they're, and, and they even have on YouTube a little video somebody took on their phone and uh, somebody was questioning them, why are you doing this? And they said, well, it's just a part of history. It's a reality, and so we're presenting it to the kids. Do we need to present sin to our children, especially something as horrible as that? But you see, what I, my, my whole point isn't so much to shock you, but I guess it is because we need to see that this is how hard-hearted our society is. This is how foolish our society is. I'm 61. I graduated high school in 1975. My elementary years were obviously in the 60s. These things that are talked about freely were such a shame, even to those in the world, that they were not presented in, 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 in society, you know, amongst the general population. Again, I've mentioned it before. You watch Lucy and and Ricky, they slept in, in separate beds. That was in the 50s. And then there was the Brady Bunch. Well, now all of a sudden, mom and dad are in the same bed. But then later on, they show you what's going on in that bed. You know, Ricky and Lucy, you can say, well, how ridiculous. They were married. We know they slept in the same bed. But you need to see the desire for morality within a society. Yeah, everybody knew all of that, but why do we need to see it? Why does it need to be beamed into our houses? And what we have today is a result of all of those things that have happened. There was the revolution of the 60s and our society lost. We lost we moved into the 70s and then the 80s and these me generation and we've moved so far away from the Lord, at least morally speaking and biblically speaking, not talking about the church, the church that is true and right in the sight of God, but just our society in general because we were founded on biblical morals, but we have cast those as a society aside. The fool has said in his heart, Again, the heart is the inner man. It's the place only you and God know. This is the depths from your being, from where your beliefs spring forth, where your will springs forth, and your understanding governs your thoughts and your decisions and your actions. The heart, again, is that inner man where God meets us and God does that work. It's where belief springs out and salvation comes in. It's that heart that, yeah, I I tried to, I tried to suppress the spirit as he ministered to my heart. There was sin that I tried to hide and didn't even admit myself, but it was God who rooted those things out, displayed, and it's the Lord who gave me a new heart. Why did I need a new heart? Because the old one had a really big problem. Jeremiah reveals it in chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Of every deception that is out there, our heart, the inner person, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, is deceptful. Deceptful. It told me that I was right with God, it told me that I was doing well, that I was a good person. It fed me all of these lies and it was the worst deceiver that I experienced in my lifetime. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When it asks us that question, remember in the scriptures, when a question is asked, the majority of the time, the answer is to the negative. Who can know it? Nobody can really know it. I mean, have you ever did something and said, "Why? how, how could I do that? How could I ever do something like that? Well, that's because your heart was so deceptive, and that heart is is you, so I'm not giving you an excuse or anybody a way out. I, the Lord, search, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doing. So once again, that's why we needed a new heart on the day that we were born again. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When I've made reference to the scripture before, I've made this point. When you look at the first verse in your Bible, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Those two words, there is, are in italics. That means that the publisher, the translators, this is not inspired, but they put them in there for the purpose of, they believe, for clarification. But really what I believe that they did with the adding of those words, they've detracted from the verse. Because you take those out, and this is how it should read, the the fool has said in his heart, no, God. So with those in, there is no God. He's just choosing to ignore God And maybe you can even kind of blow that off. Well, you know what, he just doesn't understand there's a God. No, if you take the words out, it adds a lot more power, a lot more impact to this verse. If you take those two words out, the fool recognizes there's a God and arrogantly stands before a holy God and says no. When he's convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, he refuses what God has to offer or at least God's evaluation of himself. And so I think the translators did as a disservice in doing that, but it still works either way. Either way, it's the fool who denies the existence of God or admits that God exists and will not submit to his word. Now, there is a commentary on the Bible on Psalm 14 that was written to a church that, had a lot of, that has a lot of par- parallels with the United States of America This letter was written to the church that existed in a country that was the lone world power at the time. It had all of its needs met. It lived a life of excess, was in a position to glorify God, but did not, was very foolish, and is without excuse. Go ahead now and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking starting at verse 18. It's here in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> that the Apostle Paul spells out four characteristics of a fool, characteristics that are prevalent to our country today and what we see in our society today. First is the fool. The fool suppresses the truth. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so I don't know if Paul was thinking of Psalm chapter 14, where the fool has said in his heart, no God, but that's the idea here, suppressing the truth. To suppress the truth, you have to recognize something as being true. And you admit that it's true, but you suppress it. The main way that man suppresses it is by not believing it. Truth When something is true, regardless of what it is, it cannot be changed, and it is subjective. It is what it is. I'm sorry, it's objective, not subjective. And it is absolute. There is nothing that can change truth. Truth must be received. It's only a fool that does not receive truth. And so we have to understand the magnitude of that. The fool is more concerned with his own feelings, his ways, his desires, his well being, his health, his wealth, and passion to care about really anything else. We live today in what's called a postmodern society. A postmodern society believes that truth is fluid, that each individual is able to make its own truth. Well, that has brought us the quagmire of sin that we live in today, and really not just this nation, but worldwide. The fool may know that the Bible is the word of God, but he chooses to ignore it. Even deeper, this could be someone who goes to church, or a country that prints in God we trust on its currency, or a leader that sings God bless America when their actions and lawmaking contradict what is necessary for God to bless anything. In John 3, we see the born-again experience as a result of the Word and the Spirit. The fool is someone who suppresses the Word, and because he suppresses the Word, he grieves the Holy Spirit. And so if you suppress the Word of God as being true, well, that's fine. You believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. That person is never going to be saved until they open their heart to the reality of the truthfulness of the Word of God. And again, it's why they need to be brought to the place of sin. Because when they are brought to that place, it's as if you threw them into the ocean without a life preserver and they know that they're going to go down. Because remember, the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They understand they're going to be judged. They understand that they're going to drown. And it's then that they'll be evaluating the life preserver that is brought to them. Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the idea is, is the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord we see in Exodus chapter 34, it's goodness, it's kindness, it's righteousness, it's graciousness, it's merciful. And we see the dynamic of the nature of God and who he is through his name. And because of that, you deny that then you're left to the, your own resources. Secondly, the fool ignores the obvious, verses 19 through 20, because what may be um, known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now, think about that. Because what may be known of God is man- or revealed in them, in them, look, look at the miracle that you are. Look at the miracle that you are. Look look what God has done in all of creation. But just examine yourself, your your brain, your your thoughts and your feelings. How could this possibly come about by chance? I mean, I have a a tree in my house and it puts out oxygen. And I take that oxygen in and and I put out carbon dioxide and the tree takes in the carbon dioxide. And God has made this, this This. ecosystem that that is nothing self-sustaining, God sustains it all, but God uses these things for all of creation, and you examine these things from the telescope to the microscope, well, in the midst of all of that, we see the hand of God, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, so not only has God created us, we're walking miracles, God has revealed that to us, that it has come from his hand. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's kind of a contradiction in terms. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Clearly seen through creation. Clearly seen the love that God has for us and and how he keeps us through what he has created. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the unbeliever, is without excuse. Man knows that there is a God because of how God has revealed himself through creation to such an extent. There's two way, two ways that man knows of the existence of God, through creation and through the word of God. And creation, well, we have get so much in the word, but at least creation, that should bring us to where did that come from? And where did that come from should bring us to the footsteps of God. Back in the advent of philosophy, man would try to figure out where he would come from. How, how did we come about being in this, in this earth? This is before uh, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all those guys. It's the beginning of philosophy. And at one point, man thought water was God because water moved, and it moved all by itself. If you poured water out on the ground, things would grow. Water brought life to mankind. And and then in his contemplation, man thought, and he thought dirt was God at one time, or air was God at one time, just trying to think these things through. But the fact of the matter is, this creation caused man to think and caused man to search. And, matter of fact, we're told it does so to such a degree that mankind is without excuse. Now, I've pointed this out many times in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 it says that every mouth is going to be stopped. That means those who stand before the judgment seat of God, I'm talking about the white throne judgment, what we see in Revelation chapter 20. If you stand before that throne without Jesus Christ, it's going to be obvious that you have no excuse. I was talking to somebody and I've heard this before. Yeah, I don't go to church. You know what? It's full of hypocrites And you know, what? I went there and people gossiped about me or whatever it might be. And I'm thinking, you're going to take that before the throne of God? You're going to stand before a holy God and that's going to be your excuse? Well, the fact of the matter is, their mouth's going to be stopped. They're not going to be able to offer any excuse because they're going to see the holiness of God. And they're going to come to the realization and the understanding of their sinful nature. Just like Isaiah did. We looked at it Sunday night, Isaiah chapter 6. Woe was me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. In creation, we are to see two things. God's eternal power, you try and create a tree, and his Godhead, or his divine nature. These are attributes enough to come to the knowledge of the existence of God and to seek him out. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, there's going to come a time in the tribulation. So keep in mind. We're in the church age now. There's going to come the day of the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church, immediately after the rapture of the church, there's not going to be one believer present here on earth. The word of God will still exist, and the word that we share will start to germinate within people's hearts. They'll start understanding, man, those things that those crazy believers were talking about were true. But there's still going to be believers that are hard-hearted, as these things of tribulation are going on, and these cataclysmic events are coming upon people, well, it's important to understand, because I've heard people say, well, you know what, these are helicopters, and these are atomic bombs, nations are, these are from the hand of God. And and really what God is doing, what we see in the various acts of tribulation in the book of Revelation, is God using creation in some areas and undoing creation in other areas so that, again, man would look to creation and understand the existence of a holy God. Well, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, it's as if God is taking creation for those who have rejected him, and he's like hitting them over the head with creation, trying to get their, their attention. Because we are told in chapter 16, when these things are happening, it says, and they did not repent. Remember what we looked at last couple of weeks in Psalm 51, the psalm of contrition. There's always, the, as long as man's able to draw breath, man's able to repent. But God is using now creation to get their attention to bring them into a right relationship. Verse 12 of Revelation 6, I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, or check it out, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. I was sitting in my office the other day and it was the afternoon. I didn't have my afternoon coffee and I was getting kind of tired and I dozed off, don't tell my board. But I kind of dozed off a little bit. And we get trucks that come up and down the street over here. And some of them like rattle the walls or whatever they're doing. And one of them came by and did that. And I thought we were having an earthquake. And it caused me to jump and my heart's beating. And, you know, what's the scary thing about an earthquake? You're powerless in the midst of it. And that's the idea here. Uh, There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. What happens if the sun doesn't give its light? And the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its lake figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in rocks of the mountains, so this is all of humanity. What are they looking for protection? They're even going to creation for protection, and said to the mountains and the rocks fallen us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. So through all these cataclysmic events, what are they seeing? They're seeing God, but the problem is they're failing to repent, but again, God is using his creation to get their attention says in verse 17, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Once again, that question is asked, and the answer is nobody. Thirdly, the fool tries to recreate God. Let me get back to Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is man trying to recreate God in his own image, violation of the first commandment. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." And it doesn't have to go to that extent. This is just anybody who would say a loving God would not send anyone to hell because that person has fashioned a God according to their own desires and according to their own image. God is a God of love. It's why Christ died on the cross so whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But those who reject God, God in turn will reject them. Back in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Looks down from heaven, the verbiage there in the Hebrew is as one bending over and looking down, maybe how you would examine an anthill. A reminder that God is in the position of judgment and the authority. And so, a couple things here. All children of men, they fit in the category of the fool. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need that new heart. Something needs to change. A pastor once said, The fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. And again, notice the prevailing verbiage that exists in those three verses any, all, together, none, no, not one, making a very emphatic point that there's nobody who stands out above anybody else apart from God. Point being, anyone not born again is in that category of a fool. And secondly, if point one is that everyone who is a child of man is a fool, then the second point is every aspect of everyone is only foolishness. The unbeliever may do some good. He may do a lot of worldly good. But apart from God, none will be seen as good. Man can feed the poor work the homeless, shelter, give money, but it needs, no, means nothing to God and buys them nothing in the sight of God. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness, speaking of self-righteousness, are like filthy rags. We, are all, we all fade as a leaf, and all of our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Verses 4 through 6, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. For God is with the generation of the righteous, and the only way that man can be seen as righteous in the sight of God is through a right relationship with Jesus Christ. We just saw in Isaiah 64, 6, the verse I just read, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. What does Christ do? He takes those filthy rags from us and he puts his righteousness upon us. Those fine linen robes, absolute purity of Christ. To such a degree that when the Father looks upon us, he sees us just as if we have never sinned somebody that tries to come before the throne of god in his own righteousness he is an unclean disgusting thing matter of fact when it says filthy rags it's speaking of menstrual rags it's speaking of really the birth process and the idea is just as my father could do nothing right in the sight of god apart from jesus christ i can't and my future generations can't as well it's just something that is filthy and unclean in the sight of God. Verse six, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. In Zechariah chapter two, verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Remember the apple of somebody's eye is his pupil. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's as if you're poking God in the eye. That's how God perceives those who are foolish. Verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come. This is an outcry of David, I believe, in response to his realization as the Spirit has enlightened him and he sees the reality of the depravity of man. Something's got to happen. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. He's understanding that God has to do something in the midst of this situation. And we know that that was Jesus Christ who did come. He came from his people. He came from the children of Israel for all of humanity. Why? So that although we still act foolish at times, we would no longer be seen as a fool in the sight of God. The depravity of man goes deep. All have sinned. And so we can stand up here and give testimony. We'll be here all night talking about everybody's sins of the past. But how about just your sins of today? And we're all going to sin tomorrow. So that'll cover Sunday service. And we can just go on forever with that. But God chooses to see me just as if I've never sinned. Because what did he deal with on the cross it's not so much he dealt with, you know, my lying, and then I did this, and I did that, and did that. That was kind of the fallacy of the Catholic confession. What he dealt with was my sinful nature. That's what I needed. Remember, he gave me a new heart. And Father, it's because you have given us a new heart that we give you thanks, and we give you praise. And Lord, we just rejoice in what you do in this miracle, Lord, that you achieve in our lives. I mean, why would anybody have any desire whatsoever to come to a place on a Thursday night and simply hear somebody talk from a book? It makes no sense. It only makes sense, Lord, because of you. And so, Father, I just lift up those here tonight pray, Father, that we, as we visited, for most of us, who we used to be, that we would rejoice in who we are now and who you are making us to be in the future. And so, Lord, we just give you all the glory and we just give you the praise because we come to that understanding that we were unable to do a thing. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But, Lord, it was you who made us alive. And so, Father, I pray with that knowledge as we have this last song that, God, a true spirit of praise and worship will break out based upon who you are and based upon what you have done. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here tonight who doesn't know you, Lord, who, who comes, came to an understanding of the depths of their depravity, I pray, Father, that they would open their hearts to you, that, God, they would ask you to reveal yourself to you, and as you, to them. and as you do, Lord, I just pray that they would come into that relationship, that they would start praying, that they would get into your word, and they would respond to your word, and we would see salvation come to their soul. And so, Lord, once again, we just praise you for all the goodness and graciousness that you have lavished upon us. I pray, Father, that we would live our lives accordingly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We are having teacher training. That's going to be a week from this Saturday for anybody who's involved in children's ministry or if anybody wants to know more about children's ministry, if you've ever been praying or prompted by God to be involved, that day will be for you. The information is in the bulletin. Um, Sunday morning, we're back in Second Peter. Sunday evening, we're in Second Chronicles, and I'm figuring we probably got about six more studies, and then we're done with Second Chronicles. When we're done with Second Chronicles, it's been 20 years, but that means we have taught every book of the Bible. And I'm excited about that, and so is Joanne. <laughs> God bless you guys. Drive careful. Have a good night.
1: casting a fear and even when I'm A light that is coming for the heart that holds on. A glorious light beyond all compare. There will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, we'll live to know you.
2: Troubles, but until that day comes, still I will. Pray. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.